0: This is what the invaders are doing when a disease token is removed. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Do I have that right? Nice, right? That was good.
0: Welcome to the Kindred Spirit Podcast, a program completely dedicated to the board game Spirit Island. On this show, we examine and discuss every aspect of the game, whether they be general tips, in-depth strategies, or silly shenanigans. Today, Eric joins us to talk about scenarios as well as a few other things. Eric, welcome to the show.
1: Great to see you again.
2: Hey. Eric! Wait, what? Hey, Eric!
1: <laughs> Surprise you, but you didn't expect me to show up right behind you. <laughs> Hello there.
0: Hello, how have you been? Long time no see. Yeah,
1: well, I hear you just about every week, but we haven't had a chance to talk in a while.
0: I'm blushing so hard. But we don't hear you.
1: That's true, that's true.
0: One-sided relationships.
1: I probably shouldn't be, like, sending you creepy voicemails, though. That would be bad.
0: (laughs) You don't have to do that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, pass. We (laughs) appreciate
0: you listening just fine enough.
1: (laughs) So, yeah, it's been good. I have had a pretty good year, not always as productive as I might like, but other times doing pretty well. And now that it's not winter anymore, I'm so grateful to be out and about.
0: Yeah. Yep. Although for allergy season, I'm like dying. Oh. <laughs> My intake of allergy meds, unfortunately, has gone from occasional to daily.
1: <laughs> I haven't seen people literally encrusted like they were snow people, but it's almost that bad. There was a baby carriage going by where it looked green. Oh. Wow. And I found it. It was actually black. Yeah. Ew. Yeah.
0: Yeah, the trees will be shedding. And I had that exact thing happen to me a few weeks ago. I was like, I thought I had a red car, but now it's green. Yep. It's just like, ugh. So
3: <laughs> but at least we're out in the mountain sunshine now.
0: Yeah. But the real question is, so obviously you're working hard on Spirit Island stuff. You're working hard at being a parent and all the fun ramifications that that has but are you still staying up to date with LARPing and DDR?
1: LARPing, not so much. No, no. No, no. There was a convention scheduled for March, but they had to make the call whether to go forward with it right in the middle of the Omicron wave. And they said, nope. So no luck there. (laughs) Dance Dance Revolution, though, yes. Ah, yes! (laughs) Yeah. At least when my kids clean up the room, which it's in enough for me to actually put the pads at Nice. But they've also been getting into it more and more. I think they were last time we talked, but even now, like, my older's not quite as good as me, but he's getting close, so.
0: Nice! Yeah,
1: yeah, it's great.
0: So... Part of the thing about having this podcast is we like to examine and look at, honestly, everything in the box. And, obviously, how popularity works. Some people like certain things more than others, and some things have hype more than others. And one of the things that we've always liked was scenarios, so much so that we started a series on diving completely into them in the exact same way that we did for the adversaries. Well, so, I came
2: more kicking and screaming. Uh, <laughs> Ryan and Laura love scenarios. I was going to say, you're the adversary guy. <laughs> I was never in scenarios. You are our I'm adversary so sorry. guy. <laughs> I'm the adversary to the scenarios. Representing
3: two different populations of the Spirit Island players out there.
2: I was outvoted two to one on the
0: scenarios. <laughs> yes. Laura,
3: high five. Ayo.
0: So I'm just very curious about scenario things. I want to just, like, talk all about them. I'm just so curious about them. And honestly, what can you tell me about scenarios? Okay, sorry. That's way too broad of a question. Well, can we
3: go back to the beginning? Like, how did you guys even come up with the idea of let's do scenarios? Did you come up with adversaries first or scenarios first or was this a last minute thing of like, hey, what's one other way we could change it up?
1: They were both sort of baked in from the beginning, not literally, I left their development for later because trying to make them before I had the basic systems of the game down, it was a non-starter. I needed to figure out how the game worked first, but the idea for both of them was there right from the get go. Right on. Adversaries change how the invaders act, scenarios may change how the invaders act but they can also change anything else about the game so they have a lot more freedom and they can express some types of thing particularly sort of more narrative things or more quest-like structures much much better than adversaries can so that's sort of been their original core function just a different way of expanding the play variety and kind of changing up the experience of play.
3: That makes sense, since you're a D&D player, because yeah. that almost brings... I was just about
1: to ask him, being oh. like a DM, is that why you got
2: that idea, just from like being in charge of a narrative before?
1: Maybe. Partly that, partly also just to offer different experiences of play. I mean, you get different experiences depending on the spirit you're playing, and you get different experiences depending on the adversary, but then if you're playing a scenario like Dahan Insurrection or Ward the Shores, you're focused on an entirely different thing. And that changes up how the game feels in certain ways, which just swapping spirit or adversary doesn't really do.
0: Who picks the artwork for the various scenarios?
1: For the core game, it was entirely greater than games. Okay. I feel like I've given suggestions for some of them, but that it's been largely the art and graphic design folks at greater than games who have said like, oh, this scenario is this sort of thing. This art would be perfect for that. So,
0: My next follow-up question would be like... I'm guessing the artwork would be one where let's see if we can find artwork that thematically looks similar to the vibe that the scenario brings. In the same way that Sudden Ambush is for Dahan Insurrection, Mm -hmm. Hazard Spread is for Varied Terrains. I was just curious on...
1: Yeah, so, you know, it gets picked based on that general vibe. It's all coming from existing power cards. There's no art which is commissioned specifically for scenarios. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's taken out of the context of the power card, like the art for despicable theft comes from a power card which is about explorers being lost. And it's of a bunch of explorers looking at a map, which looks like a small group of people who have something and are trying to escape with it. So it's not like an exact parallel to what the power card does. It is appropriate for the scenario.
2: Was there a first scenario that you remember you came up with that kind of just got the ball rolling with scenarios? Or was it just, like you said, a general idea about narrative? Or was there one like, oh, I want to do where Dahan do damage when they move, like Dahan Insurrection?
1: I know Dahan Insurrection was one of the really early ones. I know that Blitz wasn't one of the really early ones. Oh, Blitz was one of the later ones. Guard the Isle's Heart was also later. And I think Rituals of Terror was earlier. Oh, War of the Shorts was also one of the really early ones. Because yeah, Branch and Claw and Core Game were designed and developed in tandem. Mm-hmm. So the scenarios from Branch and Claw, some of those could have been the really early ones as well. That's about as much as I remember. It was a little while ago, but <laughs> there wasn't a single first one that I recall.
0: I had a spur of the moment question. Yeah. But before that though, my OCD is insatiable. I was trying to think of what the card was for that one. <laughs> it's Despicable a binder in it. Set them on an ever twisting trail. And I
1: totally would have named it if I'd remembered offhand, but I'm like, it's something ever twisting trail, but I don't want to get the card name wrong. Sure,
0: sure. And don't worry, we have the omnipotent and omniscient Editing Ryan, who has the benefit of as much time to research things to fact check
1: us. Hey.
0: hey, Editing Ryan, how we doing? Pretty good. Thanks for asking. Cool. Dude, you're interviewing Eric Royce. Are you aware of how cool that is? I am. Just checking. Stay strong and rock on, buddy. You too. (laughs) Anyway, so, narratively speaking, with scenarios... I understand that some narrative things within Spirit Island wasn't completely done by you. For instance, the world building that was like alternate history was done by Paul from Greater Than Games, if I'm not mistaken, correct?
1: Nope, that's right, yeah.
0: So, who writes all of these and ties them all in, is it like someone has an idea and you like it, you roll with it, or are they 100% from you? Like conceptually, did every scenario always come from you or were some of them kind of like what Downpour was when Ted was like, hey, Eric, how come we don't have a monsoon spirit? And you're like, that's a great idea. So it like came from his impetus that you tweaked. Does that make sense? Like, did all of them always come from you? Okay, there's
1: two halves to this. For the, where did the sort of initial idea seed come from? That, I know at least some of them came from things which cropped up during playtesting. Hmm. Maybe it was Ward the Shores might have come, been a sort of a creative jump off from one of the testers who really wanted the adversaries to work a different way and was like tossing off. And then this adversary could try and do this and you could be trying to do this against them. And there were ideas which didn't really fit with adversaries per se, But they gave me the idea of, oh, okay, like maybe doing something more like what ended up becoming War of the Shores could be interesting as a scenario. Others were just things I came up with on my own just because I wanted to do them. And I was the one who then took them from concept to implementation, except for one, Guard the Isle's Heart. I did development work on it, but I didn't originally design it. Hmm. Actually, I think it's the one piece of game content currently published that I didn't design. Christopher Bedell did that because I was swamped. And I think either he or somebody else at Greater Than Games had the initial concept of All's heart was originally conceived of as sort of a way that beginners could step in and be more powerful right off the gate because you start with the extra power cards.
2: Mm-hmm. And presence placement. Yeah, and presence
1: placement. So like you start off powered up and the idea was sort of make it a sudden death fast play suitable for like, you know, convention players, something like that. So that you could bring it to a new player and it wouldn't take quite as long, but then still get a really good taste of the system. It didn't end up really working out for that because while it does make you more powerful, it also adds additional rules and the possibility of losing immediately. And that ends up being not the best new player experience, but the concept was neat enough that it's still like, yeah, like, let's make this a scenario, but I didn't do the initial design on that. I did a bit of dev work to iterate on it, but that was it.
3: Well, they did a great job because I love that one. I think it's one of my favorites.
1: Awesome. Really? Yeah. Why?
3: Yeah. It's so different. You get to start off a little bit more powered up. I know the rules change, but Mm -hmm. yeah, I kind of like that like instant death or not scenario type.
0: In your opinion, have scenarios fulfilled the role you wanted for them to fill?
1: Yes, though perhaps not quite as much as I'd originally hoped. Mm. The original thing which I'd hoped they would do is provide more varied play experience. And what I've found is that the majority of players seem to gravitate towards adversaries rather than scenarios similar to the fact that like the majority of players gravitate towards the balanced side rather than the thematic side. There are certainly exceptions. There's some folks who only play on the thematic side. There's some people who start flinging scenarios around really early on and just stick with them the whole way. But that is the exception rather than the rule, I think. Like This is based off of reading BGG and Reddit. There's not like a little scenario sensor in every box or everything. (laughs) So... I can tell that like, when people get to them, that they often find a number of them that they enjoy, but a lot of folks just don't even try them or they'll try one of them, like maybe Blitz, and they may pick up one because the scenarios, I'd say, are more different from each other than the adversaries are. Mm. So there's a more varied set of experiences. So somebody may really, really like one of them, but really not find another one not to their taste. And so if they happen to pick up one of the latter first, they might be like, ah, Scenarios are garbage, you know, let's move on. There's a little bit of a chicken and egg problem in that adversaries got more focus in initial playtesting and balance testing. Scenarios got some, but not quite as much as adversaries for, I think, the reasons I just mentioned, for the same reason that players gravitate towards adversaries, so do playtesters. Mm. so they are not quite as polished as the adversaries are for any given expansion. Like, I feel like the scenarios for Jagged Earth are more polished than the adversaries in base game, for instance. Mm. But any given sort of wave of content, the scenarios will be a little bit less polished because they'll probably gotten a little less attention, which means that, like, you know, there may be a little more edge cases, also because they're just weirder, so they'll end up with more edge cases. And... The difficulty may not be as precisely calibrated, both because since they're weirder, like it's more possible that certain strategies will work really well or really poorly relative to adversaries, which have multiple levels to kind of try and even things out. And so a scenario might reward or punish certain strategies more strongly than an adversary does. Or it might have been, there's at least one scenario which got a lot of testing, but it was mostly with one group. And they got really good at it. And so it got printed with a difficulty, which might be an underestimate. This is the Great River. It's printed difficulty three. I'd originally estimated it as five. In hindsight, I think it might be about a four. So I don't know.
2: Is that hard to not that they're arbitrary numbers but the adversaries make sense of like when it goes up in difficulty based on the level of like what you're adding on rules wise but with scenarios, that's got to be tricky to be like, okay, yeah, Dahan insurrection difficulty four, but owl's heart is difficulty nothing, when really it might be negative one. Like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Is it hard to like figure out a number for scenario difficulty?
1: It is. It's actually harder than adversary difficulties, I'd say, for a couple reasons. One is that variability I mentioned earlier in that it's a little bit more skewed in terms of some things will work better or more poorly, which means that a given spirit is more likely to have an atypical experience another is it can be tricky to pin down because like let's say that you usually play at difficulty 8 and you have a scenario which is around a difficulty 3 or maybe 4 people who play at difficulty 8 aren't very good at discerning the difference between difficulty 2 3 and 4 like when you get really far out of your comfort zone all you know is this is really easy or this is really hard hmm. it's very hard to discern fine gradations So with the scenario, you kind of have two choices. You can either play it just by itself, in which case you're not going to get any sort of fine tuning of difficulty because it's way too easy for you at which point lean very heavily on a very specific set of testers in order to get the difficulty information. And you need to hope that that's something that they're interested in testing because playtesting is a volunteer effort. It's not like we're saying, all right, now you must test this thing or else dire, vague, hand wavy things will happen. It's like, here's some things, it'd be great if you could do this, that'd be wonderful. But really, at the end of the day, you're know, you the one who's helping us out. So it is totally up to you what you want to test. So maybe we get the difficulty that way. Or Maybe instead we go, okay, we suspect this is about a difficulty 3 or a 4. We play it maybe difficulty 8, so let's try it with a difficulty 4 adversary and see how it goes. Mm. But then which adversary you combo with will affect things, because maybe the adversary synergizes to a greater or lesser extent with the scenario. This is especially noticeable around the jump from 0 to 1, from no adversary at all to you have an escalation effect of some kind. I'm pretty sure it's a bigger jump than the jump from one to two generally is. So if you have like, you know, a difficulty three scenario on its own and you play it by itself, okay, it's difficulty three. Now you add it to difficulty one and you get more than four. Or if you calibrate it for being with an adversary, you say, okay, difficulty three for the scenario plus one for the adversary. It comes out four. That's about right. But now if you play it on its own, it comes out easier than three. So in some ways, they're designed to be used with adversaries. It's one of the reasons that many of them are low difficulty. And don't get me wrong, like I'd be happy to publish a high difficulty scenario if a really good one comes through, but mostly they're low because that way you can get more variety. You can be like, oh, Han direction feels really different with France than it does with Sweden, than it does with Brandenburg, Prussia. Mm-hmm. And that's great, but it also complicates pinning down a particular difficulty for it.
0: I have a question for the room. I'm trying to think about why some players might prefer adversaries over scenarios, and I have two gut ideas. I'm just curious what you all might think. I'm listening. I'm wondering if players feel like they maybe have more say over the experience an adversary gives them because they can scale it. You know what I mean? Like, there's mm. Scotland level one, or two, or three, or four, but scenarios, it's like, well, you have it or you don't. I guess Powers Long Forgotten is different My a little bit. My least favorite one. Sorry! (laughs) Second wave (laughs) provides different experiences depending on which one you're doing. Varied terrains, I guess you can be like, okay, let's turn off the mountain and the sand effects for this game, but let's include the jungle and the wetland effects. But as a whole, scenarios aren't as scalable, maybe? I don't know. I'm just literally thinking out loud right now, by the way. I'm curious to hear what you all would think, too. That goes for John Laura just as much as you, Eric. I'm also wondering if adversaries don't change the way i play my spirit but a scenario might change the way i play my spirit dahan insurrection really makes downpours dahan control a lot more offensive which is cool it's awesome but that's not like standard downpour Mm -hmm. so hypothetically maybe some players don't want to be changed
1: it could be that the thing i've seen referenced most online is that people find the rules overhead of a scenario relative to the amount of difficulty increase to be much larger than for adversaries. Like if you want a difficulty for adversary, you have like usually two levels of adversary to deal with, which is not a huge amount of text, usually not a huge number of rules. But for a scenario, you're looking at all of Dahan Insurrection, which is many more rules changes for the same net difficulty increase. So it's like, okay, we want to play at this difficulty. We could either have these small modifications from an adversary or this big package of modifications, which like you say, isn't modular. Like you take it all or you leave it all. And that's what I've seen referenced most often, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if there's other factors in play as well.
0: Mm -hmm. And I'm just literally trying to put my perspective in other people's shoes here. I'm not saying I definitively know what the community's opinion is. Or you like
2: scenarios. Why do you think as a player, you tend to like those more than adversaries?
3: I like them because they do change the game completely. And I'm with you, Eric, on it's a lot to think about and learn. There's half the times when I'll start a scenario game on the online and then give up halfway through because I'm like, I don't know what's happening. So it's a little harder to learn the scenarios because you can't modulate them up or down. But they do change everything and that's really, really fun. And it makes it a little more Mm quest-like instead of just the normal everything. And that challenges you to play your spirit differently than you normally would.
2: Yeah, I think for me, it's easier with an adversary to use as like a measuring stick than it is for a scenario. Yeah. So it's easier to be like, okay, I got to difficulty eight with whatever adversary. But when you add that up with like France with Dahan Insurrection, I don't know. It's almost like harder to strategize or to be like, oh, this person did this well. It's like, well, were they using a certain spirit that really swung well with Dahan Insurrection or something? But what's been cool with this series is players who haven't played scenarios a lot, so much feedback we've gotten is, I've never played scenarios. I only played adversaries. I wanted to get good against them, but this is like opening up a new door for me. Ryan, we've gotten so many comments about people saying Blitz was amazing. Dahanis Direction is amazing. Because these are players who've had the game since 2017, but never ever used this card, or whatever. And same with me. So I'm also, not a fault, but just like, it's opening my eyes as well. Where it's like, I was only using one part of the game to be like, this is how good I am, or this is how I can get better at. But now I can use this part of the game just to have more fun, but also to get better at.
1: I've seen a bunch of those comments, and I have to say they warm my heart like it's really great i had seen a slow uptick in people trying out scenarios over time just as people played the game more and hit the point of like hey i've played you know a hundred times and yeah, i haven't tried these yet maybe i should give them a shot but dramatic uptick since you started the series and it makes me really happy
3: <laughs> hooray yay well, And maybe that's one other point to it a lot of the people who are commenting on the games and commenting on everything are the people who want to get really good and they're like chasing the stats almost Like, John, Mm. you know the stats. It's almost like baseball for you. It's a stats game. And over here, I'm just, like, playing pickup football in the backyard. And I don't care what my stats are. This makes it more fun to play at the end of the day. So So maybe there's more people out there like me who aren't going to be commenting, but they just enjoy that it changes the game. And it's just fun to do.
0: So, John, hearing your thoughts about scenarios, was our Blitz game long ago nothing to you?
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, uh, and, like... It's, be, it's been really fun for me also, just because, yeah, I really didn't play these much. I think I played Blitz the first time within like the first week we had the game. Of just like, you said you had a fun time. <laughs> no, it was me. fun. It was fun. Uh, Dahan Insurrection was definitely more fun. I like the oh. slow phase a lot. but Oh, there's a question. Current fave when it comes to
1: Ooh. scenarios. Trying to name a favorite scenario is not as hard as trying to name a favorite spirit, but it's still pretty hard. 'Cause I would think about them from a design perspective as much as a play perspective.
2: Can I talk with Eric about my least favorite? Oh sure, yeah. Speaking oh. of powers long forgotten, <laughs> it's so swinging, and I feel like I never get the good things. I always get the blanks, Eric. I flip them over and blank. Yep. And then all the adversaries Every
3: time they flip over anything. Every time it's like, thing.
2: oh, and another beating on my back. Perfect. John, calm down. Come
1: down. Anyway, <laughs> Eric, can I respond? Sure, yeah. Just like not every board game is for everybody, not every scenario is for every Spirit Island player. (laughs) That scenario is for people who like games where you're exploring and flipping over little tokens to maybe get a goodie. Like, that's what it's there, and the pressure of the invaders going after it is to give a sense of urgency rather than you will inevitably get the goodie. It's like, you didn't just get the goodie, you got it before the invaders. Hopefully. If the invaders got it before you, oops.
2: (laughs) Hopefully. But
1: yeah, no. So it injects a huge amount of chaos into the system. Like in terms of game balance, it throws things all over the place. Mm. If the invaders happen to flip up something good for them versus if you flip up something good for you, it can be an immense swing of difficulty. But that scenario isn't about precise difficulty challenge. It's about living through an experience of trying to find the fun goodies before the invaders do. It's about a race game, basically.
2: Mm. Okay. That's a good perspective. Yeah. You know, somebody who hates
1: tower defense games is not going to like The Great River because The Great River skews the game hard in a tower defense direction. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah.
1: And somebody who really likes tower defense games is probably going to like it more. So the scenarios are allowed to be more unusual than adversaries are. Well, at this point, there's enough adversaries out there that they can be a little more niche. The base game adversaries all had to be like pretty vanilla in terms of this should maybe not appeal to everybody, everybody, but have a fairly broad swath of appeal. Scenarios can afford to be a little more narrow. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, just like, how are you able to make it more broad? I can see that in the scenarios, too, where, like, speaking of Powers Log Forgotten, now we get tokens to flip. And then in Elemental Invocation in Jagged Earth, now we get elements to put on the island. So were you able to, like, get more creative as the expansions came out?
1: Yeah, like the new expansions offer new design space. There's scenarios which involve tokens or components for which the expansions are required, I think. I'm just doing a quick look at the expansions, which are in Branch and Claw, like several of them require the scenario markers and the split between what was in Branch and Claw and what was in base game was almost entirely determined by components, Mm. if I'm recalling correctly. Because, yeah, Powers Long Forgotten requires them, War of the Shores requires them, Second Wave does not, but Rituals of the Destroying Flame does. So, yeah, all of them except Second Wave flatly had to be in Branch and Claw.
2: Well, Second Wave, it talks about tokens, too. Like, if you have so many beast tokens, yes, exactly. you keep yeah.
1: Them. And so, if you try and publish that in the base game, like, you'd confuse people, like, it would work, but people would be like, what are these tokens of which you speak? Uh-huh. Strange language thing. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, my current fave is very terrains. I love this scenario. One of the reasons why I love it so much is because I feel as if it's just like a healthy injection of standard. And what I mean by that is it doesn't pull, in my opinion, the game to a point where it's so dramatically different. Like, it still retains enough of the standard experience, but still honestly feeling like the same game. Like, obviously, Dahan Insurrection is a very Dahan-centered scenario. I felt as if very Terrain's added difficulty, yes, which I appreciated, but not crazily so, while also not thematically going in a specific direction that would require me to go a certain playstyle in order to beat it. Also, I think it's honestly really good for, like, a healthy, hey, you, newer player, you know how the game works, here's just something extra. But it's not, like, crazy over the top. Like, it's one of my second or third recommended scenarios. Blitz always is number one. Easy. So that's one of the reasons why I really like varied trains. I don't know, I think it's on the easier side to understand, is every one of the lands does something cool. That's what they do. One of them does explores. two of them do Builds, one of them does Ravages.
2: And it's not like the worst, I don't think. Eric, when I was first learning the game, I almost thought that the different lands would do something like very trains. Like when Ryan was explaining to me the jungles, I'm like, oh, are they different how they work than the sands do? Which they're not, but I don't know. It felt perfect when very trains came out because when I was first learning the game, I felt like the wetlands should do something different than the
1: sands. Absolutely. That was a frequent thing, which well, I wouldn't say frequent, but periodic, like it wasn't a one-off. Playtesters would bring it up and I wanted it too for thematic reasons. Like they should be different. But it always ended up just being too much on the complexity level for new players. Like, it was just a bridge too far. So I have a hard time referencing a favorite scenario overall. But I can say that Buried Terrains is definitely my favorite currently published mod style scenario.
2: Ooh. Mm.
1: So let me back up and define my nomenclature here. I see there's sort of two poles for scenarios. One pole is sort of story or quest, and the other pole is like mod. For story and quest, the mechanical changes tend to be in service to some kind of narrative. And for a mod, the mechanical changes aren't narratively driven. They may be experientially driven. They may be thematically inspired like they are for varied terrains, but they're not narrative. And like Dahan Insurrection and Despicable Theft, they are very close to the story pole. And Blitz and Varied Terrains are very close to the mod pole. Hmm. And, you know, things can be anywhere between. And for the things which cluster around the mod pole, I think that varied terrains is definitely my favorite. It just makes me happy to have the terrains have their own distinctive personalities.
0: That's another thing that you reminded me of that I do truly like. Sometimes, as a player I'm playing with, you're like, eh. They think that having all four of them active seems a little harsh, and so they're kind of afraid of it. And if I want to, I can be like, oh, let's just do the sands then. Or, hmm. you know, in a weird way, very terrains is level one through four.
2: It's kind of like One is yeah. you have one
0: of them active. Yeah. Two is two of them active. And so on. Three, three active. And then level four is they're all active. And that's kind of uncommon, but
2: I kind of dig it.
1: Yeah, as long as you don't mind having some swinginess depending on what cards come up, it works great. Sure, sure.
2: Eric, you're talking about narrative versus mod or like the different designs of where each scenario lands in. Mm -hmm. A lot of things I've heard or seen people ask is, I want a legacy game of Spirit Island. Mm. I want a narrative. Mm. I want something to build on each other. And me and Ryan have talked about, it's like, well, you can just kind of play second wave where there is this narrative. Was that like a reply or a response to people asking for a legacy style game of Spirit Island?
1: Not directly insofar as I designed it before the game was released, Mm. but to address that sort of thought, Yes. It was sort of half that, but also half like, what happens next? Like, we won, now what? And the answer is, well, if you want to play another game to kind of see another battle in the larger scheme of things, you can do that. Legacy Spirit Island is something which has obviously been asked about a lot and something I've given a lot of thought. The core difficulty with it is that the arc of what a character would do over the course of a legacy campaign is the arc of what a spirit does in a single game of Spirit Island. So the scoping is wrong, basically the journey of a spirit from its starting existence to the end, it's grown much bigger. It has changed, it has learned new powers and those powers are a part of it and changed its nature. It may have forgotten powers. Mm -hmm. It has become a different spirit and slowed down and also hopefully successfully driven off the invaders. So it's in a new place. Then having a legacy game where, like, where do you go from there? Like, they've taken that journey. Now, I have had ideas around this about how you can manage it, where you start off super low in scope, mm-hmm. and you have, like, very local, super small spirits. So, like, you know, you play some games at that very local scope, and then you kind of zoom out so that you slice that growth up or across multiple things.
2: Low in scope, do you mean like eight from lesser spirits?
1: Yeah, yeah. Like you'd start off as a spirit even smaller, like where the entire island map would represent a single land from an actual game of Spirit Island. And you'd be playing hyper local teeny tiny spirits and you'd play a couple of games with them and then somehow they'd power up. And then as you powered up, you'd get the ability to like zoom out in scope in some way.
0: That actually could work.
1: I think it could work. That could work. I'm not sure if it is worth the amount of work because legacy games are a beast to make. Yeah. I've looked into it. Like every game designer I know, when the first legacy game came out, went, that is an awesome concept and I want to make one. And then thought about doing so and maybe dove in. Some people did. I didn't have the time, so I kind of watched eagerly to see what this new trend would bring and found that indeed like legacy games are as i think rob davio said like they're about three times as much work as a regular game wow i can believe it
2: why so much well, this game has a times of work as it is
1: i'm surprised that number is as low as three really oh yeah yeah wow you need to come up with a game system which is fun all on its own i mean you hope so if the only thing which is fun about your legacy game is the advancement then it's probably not a great legacy game hmm So you need to come up with a game which is fun on its own, and then make it robust enough that you can have legacy elements which don't break it, and which feel right with it, and resonate, and make the game different in interesting as opposed to trivial ways. Mm. It's a really tall order. And when you're talking about that progression, like, let's say you've got the game system all hashed out, and then you discover that, oh... When we advance it through episode N in some legacy campaign, that means that this core system breaks down, but we really want to do this thing. Now you go back, you revise the core system, and now you have to overhaul all the legacy content. Mm. Or partway through testing, you discover, oh, like legacy elements one and two have problems. Now you need to redo all subsequent legacy elements and replay test them all. In that way, it's a little bit like adversaries, where if adversary level one changes, it has a ripple effect through all of the later adversary levels. Wow, yeah. Adversaries have six levels. Most legacy games support more than six sessions. Like, so you get the same kind of problem.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I was just thinking because you come from a background of, like, D&D, like, maybe you like that narrative legacy where people are building their characters going on this quest journey, and there is, like, an end.
1: It's super appealing, don't get me wrong. Like, it's really neat, and I have these ideas, and if I could snap my fingers and make them happen magically, balanced and working, I would totally do that. Mm. Like, I want to play that. Yeah. But I don't think I want to take six years off from doing anything else to make it happen. We don't want that, right? Yeah. Yeah.
0: So you got enough on your plate as it is.
1: Yeah. It's a matter of enjoyment, return on investment, which is kind of a crass way to put it. But you know, am I spending my time on something which I think is worthwhile, both for me and for the fans? And I'm just not sure that Legacy Spirit Island is there. I think that the base concept of Spirit Island has some things which are not a great match.
2: I remember like you were talking about when the first Legacies game started coming out. I also remember it was like Risk Legacy, Pandemic Legacy, and Scythe came out with like a Legacy expansion. Yep. I remember like all these games like, oh, these are all Legacy now. It kind of just hit like a wave almost.
1: Yeah. Now, I mean, there are other things which are not Legacy. Like you might have seen that Ted did a question thread on BGG about campaigns and Legacy stuff. Like what's the difference between a legacy game and a campaign and what distinguishes a campaign? And there's one or two fan-made campaigns for Spirit Island. Mm-hmm. So like that's less of a change. It still runs into the core thematic difficulty of once a spirit has gone through a game of Spirit Island, it should be done. You know, you could make a thematic exception for like Shifting Memory of Ages because it explicitly in its lore makes itself smaller again. Like that's a thing that it does mm-hmm. to speed itself up again. But that's not a thing that most spirits do. Maybe someday that's a direction I'll explore, but it's not a thing which I'm currently thinking hard about. Okay. That
3: makes sense.
0: I have okay. seen some really cool fan made legacy style spirit island things. It's actually pretty impressive. Okay. Right. So shout out to all those people who have like done those because they're really cool. Awesome.
3: Speaking of fan-made content, so we've seen a lot of players strategizing on how to best take on the adversaries. Especially, you know, we get in the higher difficulty level and different spirits and whatnot, but we noticed that they don't have have as much discussion towards scenarios, which I'm a little confused by. You'd think they'd also be strategizing best way to guard the Isles Heart or all of the other names of them. So, did you expect this to happen? Were you surprised that they're not chatting about them as much?
1: I think it's just the correlation with the general focus on adversaries over scenarios. It's just that people are discussing the adversaries more because they're seeing more play. I'm hoping, like, I'd love to see that change. That would be great. Although, adversaries definitely have their counter picks, you know, Lure versus Russia, Stone versus Habsburg. Mm. But I think there are probably, on average, more counterpicks for scenarios. So the discussion needs to sort of start off with, okay, assuming you're not counterpicking, what are the things which you want to do here? You know, or even explicitly strategy discussions on like, okay, this spirit seems like it wouldn't necessarily be very good at this scenario. How can you make them work that way? How can you make them shine?
3: Ooh, that would be a good discussion.
1: Turns
0: out, Thunderspeaker and Downpour are pretty good for <laughs> Dahan Insurrection. Yes.
1: Yes, indeed.
2: (laughs) So, Thunderspeaker came out with Dahan Insurrection. You had to know, like, this was a broken combo, right?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. What? It's fun! (laughs) Yeah, I mean, part of the reason why it's as egregious as it is is because Thunderspeaker just flat out is really good. Yeah. And then when you add Dahan Insurrection on top of that... Why not? Thunderspeaker starts off with a Dahan movement unique plus sudden ambush... (laughs) which lets you move one to Han, which is pricey. Don't forget about that innate. (laughs) And the every turn innate. And the every turn innate is where things get really awesome. Like a unique is great, but you're only playing it once per reclaim cycle, unless you have a reclaim one. The every turn innate is really where things shine.
0: What a great way to maneuver a nerf to Manifestation of Power and Glory. <laughs> everything else is so ridiculously strong that you won't need it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> by the time
1: you have enough to hunt, there, everything will already be dead. Yeah. It's
0: already <laughs> taken care
1: of. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Now, that being said, I think that your estimation of exactly how easy it was uh, may have been influenced by the fact that you were playing just the scenario without any adversary support. Now, I'm not saying that Thunder Speaker would not be crushing any adversary beneath them in hunt Insurrection. They totally can. But with no adversary, oh, geez, like, that's Steamroll City.
3: He was just asking for an easy win.
1: But that's the experience (laughs) that Laura wanted. (laughs) And if that's what you want, go for
3: it. No, I got bored.
2: Yeah, we kind of talked with Eric before this, but yeah, uh, we're going to be adding Brenberg Prussia, level three now to the scenario series. Awesome. Great.
0: Up your game a little. All right, so my favorite is Very Terrain's Laura's DeHaan Insurrection. Eric doesn't have one, and John probably hates them. So I guess there's the answer to all of That's that. the end of the episode,
1: folks. <laughs> Two for four. I thought John's favorite was Everything Which Wasn't Powers Long Forgotten.
2: Ah, there it goes. There it is. Eric, I do really like Elemental Invocation. That one's fun. Because I'm a big innate person. We're, as a group, getting better at going for majors earlier or losing uniques, but the little kid inside of me or whatever just loves triggering my innate, whatever spirit I'm playing, it doesn't matter which spirit, but I just feel like I am doing that spirit justice, but like, okay, I'm still doing somewhat a part of what they are. I think that's why I still like top track fangs because there's so many elements up top, I can still trigger ranging hunts, getting off topic, but elements of invocation, I feel like I can always trigger those innates and then switch to majors and then trigger those thresholds. Yep. So it's almost like the best of both worlds where I'm still being I am as a spirit, but then get to play the big hitters with the kicker on top.
1: Yep, and it adds a different sort of layer of strategy around the spatiality of where you're putting the elements. yes, Yes. So it's like, where would this go best and such? So yeah.
2: Which corner, which adjacencies it has?
0: Starlight's gonna be like,
1: yo! Yeah, yeah. Trigger all of
0: them. Defense over here, offense over there. It's the
3: scenario that annoys you the most because you're just like, every turn, why did I put that element over there in that land? I need it over Ah! here in this land every time, (laughs) no matter what. I always pick the wrong spot to add it.
0: Laura sending her good vibes as always.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so elemental vocation has like an asterisk with it next to difficulty. Was this one hard to measure or to say like what the difficulty was? It's like one with an asterisk on it.
1: Yeah, it's one of those things where it increases the skill ceiling, where really skilled players who can predict where they're going to need those elements and which elements they're going to need and whether it's worth it to put that element down will gain more out of the scenario than the difficulty increase provides. But for like a first time player, they're gonna have no idea where an element would go well or how to use it or which element it should be. Or maybe they can guess which element it should be because like, you know, they can see the ones on their panel. But they're not gonna have nearly the insight The scenario gives you a tool you can use to do better and boosts the difficulty in a few ways to compensate. And how will you use that tool versus how much the difficulty is increased is sort of what determines the difficulty of the scenario. And that's very variable with player skill. Mm.
0: One of the reasons why John and I are so favorably minded towards Elemental Invocation was because that was the first and currently only time that we got a Terror Level 1 victory. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. hard to get. <laughs> yeah. As
2: I believe it was Travel River and Might Earth. So, you know, pretty okay spirits. Mm-hmm. Not bad. <laughs> no, really good spirits. But yeah, that was a cool mm. memory. I mean we took a video of it. Yeah. So but I should go find that video and throw it up on the YouTube. Why not? Yeah, we should <laughs> to
0: link it because that was an epic victory. The quality will be in like 140p or whatever.
2: It was an old it like, phone. It's an old phone. But we still have yeah, the footage of when we got our terror level one victory. Oh, so good. But another memory we had was in Rituals of Terror, and we've made references many times on the show where Laura got to do 60 damage in one land.
3: Ooh. Oh yeah, that was fun. I do remember that one. Just
2: good old fashioned
0: thunder speaker doing
2: thunder speaker thing. Back to manifestation of power and glory. Hey, <laughs> there it is. Yep. So, while we're talking about rituals of terror, this feels very thematic, but it almost feels like, was this like a different version of what Spirit Island was? With like how to earn fear or fear cards? This feels so different to how to win the game or get fear cards. Was this like maybe an early iteration of the game? Like this was maybe an early idea of what fear was or is just something you tacked on? Because it came in the base game.
1: Yeah, no, it was one of the earlier scenario ideas, I think. It's not indicative of a way that the game used to be, but I sort of had the base concept of one of the interesting thematic things is the spirits and, in Rituals of Terror, the Dahan, trying to sort of get together to do some great working. I tried a number of different variations on that. Some of them worked, some of them didn't. Ones which worked turned into Rituals of Terror, Rituals of the Destroying Flame, and sort of Wore the Shores. And a bunch of others didn't work at all, and you haven't seen them.
2: (laughs) This one, yeah, it just feels very specific. At least three to Han, at least one presence, collect three energy. I'm sure you worked out those numbers like, nah, four Han's too much, but two's too easy type of thing. All these are very specific numbers.
1: Those are intended to handle player scaling. The trouble with something about gather a certain number of Dahan into a land is that it gets drastically more difficult the bigger the board is. Mm. You know, for a one-player game, getting three Han into one land is usually not very difficult. But in a six-player game, getting 18 han into one land unless you're playing a really strong control spirit that can be a bit more of a chore
2: i've never thought about six players because at the time this came out we can only do four yep six that that is a lot like we did our first six player game can you imagine which was so much fun by the way that new
0: neoprene mat was so much easier (laughs) yeah
3: Shout out to whoever put the little white lines around every area.
2: Laura loved that. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, but six players. I did not think about that, Eric. Of how like the one corner has to get to the middle. Yeah. How you guys work that out? Just wait until you have to dream of an untouched land.
1: Oh no. Yeah, and I mean, wow. you know, there's ways around it. If you're playing with like Finder and Thunderspeaker, you can probably manage it. But if you're not like specifically counterpicking for the scenario, it becomes pretty hard. Right. Which is why there's a constant cost in both presence and energy, where you collect spend three energy and destroy three presents in the land because in a six-player game coming up with that is nearly trivial mm. but in a single-player game that's a much larger cost mm. that
3: makes sense I will say, I love that scenario, Tools of Terror. It's fun. That one is
2: fun. It feels extremely cooperative.
0: Yes. Yes. More so than base yes. oh, I was about to say, it feels like a massive effort by everyone. Or at least, it will be a lot more doable when everyone gets involved, so the necessity is there. Yeah. But hey, you also get to do a slumber party with your friends. Yeah. <laughs> hey!
1: If you want to try it on harder mode, start at Terror level zero. Hmm. Well, you start at terror level one, as the scenario goes. It's one of my mild dissatisfactions. Oh, Oh, yeah, okay. I'm
2: like, what is this terror level you speak of?
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So you can win Rituals of Terror without ever performing it, which doesn't sit quite right in hindsight, you know, because you just need to mop up the entire island, including all the explorers. But if you start at terror level zero, then you must perform it at least once to win. And, you know, hopefully you can do that. But it also means that you're you know, one ritual further away from any given victory condition. Hmm. It also means that your initial fear cards are terror level one instead of going to terror level two effects right off the bat.
2: Ooh, that would be definitely harder. Mm-hmm.
3: Now I want to yeah. try that. Laura mm, likes a do challenge.
2: It. Let's That's do good. It. Rituals
1: of terror extreme mode. <laughs> <laughs>
2: But, I mean, we do like that as a group, because we're not ones to like, stay on our own board and just be like, oh, I'm just doing this, this game, you guys figure yourselves out. Yep. Like, we are a very cooperative team, or even a meta of, like, the people we teach and play with. Everyone's really interactive, so I think that's why we all kind of glom on to this scenario, because it's, like, how we play already, almost. Mm-hmm. Thoughts on diversity of spirits? Dost thou have any? I thought he went silent for a reason. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> nice. Speak to us. in
0: sign. Funny. <laughs> that is funny.
1: No, diversity of spirits was part of the original game. If you're looking for a scenario, which was there was a period in the playtesting of the original game where these spirits could not communicate in any tongue that the players shared at the start of the game, and it was gloriously thematic. And some players loved the heck out of it, like 20 to 25% of them. And most of the playtesters hated it with a fiery, fiery passion <laughs> because it undercut the core fun of the game, which was collaborating. Mm. But the players who liked it said, you know, is there any way you could like make this a variant somehow? And I'm like, OK, yeah, let's you know try and make that a scenario. I did not manage to get it working Early enough to include in the first wave content, but I pushed on it for the second wave. So I'm really happy it's out there because I know there's at least a few people who really, really want it.
2: Right on. I don't know if you've heard of the game The Minds, but that's almost like that where we're not allowed to speak and you have to play a card and each card has to go up chronologically.
1: Yes, I've played it.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But our group always ends up just talking. (laughs) During that?
3: it just sounds like a big discussion on bathroom. Like, I could go, but if you need to go, <laughs> you
2: go. I kind of really need to go, but maybe I don't need to go. <laughs> That's funny.
1: Have you tried Quirky Circuits? It does a similar sort of thing except with action programming, like sort of RoboRally-ish. It's glorious. Because like the fun of Robo Rally is when things go hideously wrong, like when things go off the rails and it's all chaos and lasers and trying to cooperatively with no communication program a single robot. Like, you know, you have a little bit of information. You do have some information. It's not zero. So it can be done. And you do get these cool the mind type moments. The last time I played it, there was this one turn where we just laid down cards one after the other. We had this string of 14 cards or something. Maybe not that many. And we ran them and it was perfect and we won. And it was great. uh, It was just this like hive mind moment.
3: This sounds so fun. But
1: far more often things will be like, oh wait, I thought you were going to turn left and you turned right. (laughs) Now instead of vacuuming things up, we're destroying things and oh no, where are we at the end of the turn? If you like that sort of thing, definitely check it out.
3: All right. It's on my list now.
0: I've never played that one. I'm not sure if I would absolutely love it or if it would drive me up the freaking wall. Because <laughs> that sounds like it could, depending on my mood, be the most frustrating thing
2: ever. But also the most fun.
0: <laughs> right? It could I don't be know. fun. So if you guys
2: buy it, sure. yeah, Lars already, already got a tab for, for it. So yeah, we might buy it. Ooh, I have a question about Blitz. Yeah, we covered a few weeks back. Who knows when this will air? But, in teaching the game, some people really struggle with the different spirit phases of, like, first fast, and then the invader, and then slow. So, was Blitz a response to people being confused in all the different phases of spirit, fast, invader, and slow phase? Is this because you think lightning's still good for beginners? Are you
0: still on that? Are you still talking about this? Lightning gives people bad, bad Or is habits. it Starlight now? I can never remember nowadays. It's a low I can't com- remember which one starlight you Starlight think- becomes
2: a low-complexity <laughs> spirit.
1: All right, now I need to publish, like, low-complexity Starlight, you know, where you have, like, (laughs) you can choose things, but you have, like, you know, you can choose to unlock a single growth option, and it has no innate powers. (laughs) I'd play it. (laughs) Bad Starlight. So, the answer to your question is almost, but not quite. It was not designed for people who are having trouble with the fast slow split. It was designed for people who had figured it out and didn't like it. Oh, Huh. There was a minority of playtesters, maybe about like 5% to 10% of playtesters of the original game, were somewhere between dubious and actively intensely disliked the fast-slow split. But it was core enough to the game, both on a thematic level and a mechanical level and an experiential level, that it wasn't something that I wanted to cut at all. But this is actually where the notion of a mod-style scenario came from, was Blitz. Mm. On a mechanical level, it's not that it's difficult to remove the distinction between slow and fast. It's just that it has repercussions which aren't really the game I want to make, but I can certainly publish a scenario which makes those modifications so that people who really prefer that play experience can find it. Because, you know, there's no reason to be exclusive or exclusionary. Different people like different things. That's fine. It is actively good. So for those testers and for the eventual players who they represent
2: That's so funny because that is my favorite part about the game because it's cool to play a slow power and be like, all right, I'll play this and I don't know what I'm going to do with it yet. I mean, Ryan and I say this all the time, like, all right, I'm playing Massive Flooding. I'm triggering it with River. I don't know what I'm going to flood or push away, but eventually I can react or plan ahead and then once I see what they're doing, then I can respond to that. So Blitz takes that away from me almost in a way of just that reactability. I don't know. Everyone's different. We all like different things.
1: Yeah, no, I think that what you've said is true for a lot of people, that the fast-slow split, it adds an interesting sort of depth to the game. That's a comment I've seen a fair bit online. And I mean, I agree, that's why I kept it in. (laughs) It's something that I like about the game. It reinforces the theme, like the spirits are slow, like, you know, humans are faster than the spirits of this size. And it goes sort of hand-in-hand with the preventing the explore-build-ravage cycle, like the earlier you can stop that cycle, the more efficient it tends to be. One of the themes of the game is sort of about foresight and anticipation and looking towards the future.
2: Hmm. Is there a reason the scenarios don't have lore, if that makes sense? So there's the back spear panel or is at the front, whatever. And then the adversaries have lore, but the scenarios is kind of like a sentence.
1: Yeah, there's sort of a setting the scene. Sometimes there'll be a very specific situation, but mostly I want to keep it general enough, like Dahan Insurrection, as an example. Like, I could come up with a story of a very specific insurrection Mm -hmm. that would create a couple of small things. If I created a very specific insurrection, then ideally I'd want to include details specific to that specific insurrection and that creates even more rules overhead. There's also, it might not fit with whichever adversary you pair it with if I have a very specific story that way. And then finally, and not at all a minor factor, is limited space. There's just not a lot of space on those scenario cards. Both the scenario and adversary panels are the size they are because like, they're the size that I provided them for when I handed the files over to Greater Than Games. But I hadn't chosen those files specifically for play experience. I chose those files because that way I could print them two up on an 8.5 by 11 sheet of paper.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I love the practicality.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and they certainly worked at that size. It just required like second wave. The font size is really small. There's information packed on both front and back. Some of them have more space to sprawl out. But for many of them, there's just not a lot of room to put anything extra. So what the heck are those things in Powers Long Forgotten anyway? Like, what are they supposed to be? Where do they come from? Basically, is there lore behind them? Because the answer is yes.
2: Okay. Speaking of the bane of my existence, those little token thingies in Powers Long Forgotten. Eric, what are those things even? What is the thought process behind them? Why are they always blank when they flip? Them? Like, <laughs> talk to me about those. <laughs>
1: First of all, you should understand the scenario markers are specifically encoded with instructions that if you specifically flip them, then they change themselves to be blank. <laughs> I knew!
0: <laughs>
3: they're my events
1: that's what they are they're I my events it. <laughs> admit it <laughs> but as for what the actual sort of listed items are the mystical items not all of them but most of the things you can discover are based off of spirits from playtesting the original game which didn't get published uh, like five or six of the eight. Oh. So, I kind of wanted to give a nod to those spirits by including some piece of them. Huh. Some, you know, sort of spirit heart or fragment of their nature. And the powers for those ones are all based off of what the spirit was.
2: Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense, actually. It does. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. really kind of sweet. <laughs> I think next time I'm just going to cheat and just make sure I put oh. the right ones. <laughs> <laughs> Take a page of the Laura's book. And then I'll feel even more thematic and lore-heavy with the powers I'm flipping over.
3: I had thought about that. What if you play it where you only put out the ones that have good stuff and the can't not get any
2: of it. They call that Tuesday yeah. at your house. <laughs> yeah, they call that
1: every time we play Spirit Island. In theory, you should be able to do that if you just jack up the difficulty enough in other ways.
3: Yeah, there I you go. Play think against Brandenburg you know, Prussia 10 or whatever.
1: Yeah, Try that with a 6 plus 6 game or something. Like, who knows? Maybe it'll be balanced, or it probably won't be balanced. But it'll probably be interesting. No, I there like,
2: you go. I like Laura's idea of Brandenburg Prussia level 10 where there's only four invader cards in the whole game.
1: Oh, God <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> Briny deep, briny deep,
0: briny deep. <laughs>
2: Hi, Roll, baby. Ugh, I'm trying to
0: hold back my OCD on like asking, so what was this particular power resonant from and <laughs> all the bits? But I realize for many reasons why I can't ask that question. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. So we talked about the art of despicable theft. I'm curious if there's any stories behind that one.
1: That one was one I wanted to make sort of from two directions at once. One was sort of on a mechanical level, the spirits trying to deal with things which are kind of slippery and evasive and having a time limit. Like in much of the game, if sands come up, sands builds and then ravages... Until Sands comes up again, as long as it's not coastal, you can just let it alone for a while. And that's something that oftentimes in the journey from a beginning player to an intermediate player, one of the things they realize is, oh yeah, that town over there isn't really doing anything. We can just leave it alone for now. Mm. Despicable Theft offers a whole bunch of challenges just coming in which you need to deal with. And... Unlike the Great River, they're not necessarily things that you have the tools to deal with quickly and easily, so there's sort of a risk war calculation. Mm. On a thematic level, I really wanted to sort of depict like the flip side of colonial archaeology, where it's like, let's just go off to this foreign land and assume that we can take anything we want. Speaking of which, did you know there's a podcast called Stuff the British Stole? <laughs>
2: Stuff the British stole? No, but I'm going to subscribe to it.
1: I hear originally stuff was a rather less polite word.
2: Oh. (laughs) Family show. Family show. Oh. (laughs) Oh. Right.
0: Right. I've not
1: listened to the whole series. I've listened to one which is on like a guest episode and another podcast I listen to, but it's on my queue.
0: That's funny. Would you believe me if I told you that every time I looked on the back of Despicable Theft and I saw the thing that said thwarting the sneaky thieves... I always think of Gollum.
1: <laughs>
0: Sneaky. Ah, I wish I could do a Gollum impression. Can any of us here do a Gollum impression? I can't. Ah,
1: oh, Sneaky. Sneaky. Trixie,
3: false. You don't <laughs> have any friends. You stole it from us.
2: <laughs> yeah, and there's our reference for the episode. Hey, hey ding. 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 <laughs> So we kind of spoke on Dahan Insurrection yeah. and who's broken overpowered with it mm. and our, our experience with it. But right, we just did that one too. Yeah, and that was one we just did and listeners loved. Is there any other thoughts or backstory behind that scenario?
1: Mostly it wears it on its metaphorical sleeve. You know, it's about, given that Dahan don't have player-based agency in Spirit Island, it's a way of making the game more about the Dahan.
0: I love that, by the way, mm. that is so cool. And you know, I actually just listened to those episodes, so
1: it was great. Hey. Oh, I wanted to mention one thing, which is that, you know, you mentioned that like, if you're playing single player, that going from terror two to terror three doesn't help you at all, oh. because that scenario has the same fence post error that the Blake cards did. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I avoided it with Scotland and Habsburg and a bunch of other cases, but there's a few places, particularly in first wave content, where I just walk smack into that one.
2: We didn't know how big of a solo game Spirit Island was gonna be at the time, <laughs> and it's like the most popular solo game out there, one of
1: them. Yeah, so like if you wanna like play without the fence post error, like feel free, go ahead, you have my blessing, it's okay. okay. Just <laughs> hand waves. Don't talk about it. <laughs> You bring up a
0: good point, though, John. Since the last time we've had you here, Spirit Island did win. There's a BGG contest, like best solo game of the year, and it won.
1: I am immensely which was stoked. Like, yes.
0: Oh! <laughs> oh! Oh, yes! Yes! And that's happened since our last interaction with you. I was like, oh,
2: yes! A cooperative game you play by yourself.
0: Woohoo! Yes! <laughs> And wasn't there another contest like there Geek was like Peak Magnus
2: at Spirit yeah. Island One too, and it
0: was like climbing up the ranks. I was just like, mm, like just yeah, I was happy. It was a good time. It was a good time to be a Spirit Island fan. Mm-hmm. Good job, Eric. <laughs> Thank you. Congrats. <laughs> you can bask in the golf claps of three individuals. <laughs> But seriously, yeah. congratulations. That's a really cool feat. And I hope that you were whelmed with all the warm happies that I
1: was. Totally warm fuzzies. Yes. This is a good time to say thank you to all of the other people who helped make Spirit Island possible. Yeah. Ted and other developers, play testers, folks like you who create Spirit Island content. Everybody.
0: Is this your Oscar acceptance speech? Is that what this yeah, is? Yeah, much. Well, I don't think
1: Spirit Island's going to win an Oscar. so them <laughs> off. Play them off, <laughs> Ryan. <laughs> I'd like to
0: take this moment to thank yeah. and just go down like the laundry list of a hundred people's names but yes no seriously
3: well we've asked you about your favorite scenario but do you have a favorite memory with playing a scenario there you go
1: i do i have a few but there's one which stands out most which was a game i played i can't remember which adversary it was it was a low-level adversary but we played rituals of terror and rituals of the destroying flame at the same time that's (laughs) illegal (laughs)
0: You do not get to tell him what's illegal, John.
1: (laughs) Oh, no, no. It's unsupported. There's a difference.
0: Oh. Oh! We like look underneath, like the last yeah. flap in the box. Yeah. There's a trap door in there. There's like all this content. What?
1: No, combining scenarios is not officially supported because we just don't have the bandwidth to test all of them, and too many of them would be broken together. But experienced players should be able to judge pretty well what will and won't work together. And so, some friends and I were like, oh what if we do both of the rituals together? Let's give it a try." Why not? And it was long enough ago. This was like before it was even published. I think. Like I couldn't even tell you why we had such a blast but i remember it being a whole lot of fun Mm -hmm. maybe it was that combo give it a try find out maybe it was the company maybe it was just ridiculously stupid and we were all laughing a lot about it i don't know but i have such warm memories and i can like remember where i was the house where i was where we were sitting oh yeah there are pieces of paper in front of me so it must have been before the game was published yeah so okay
2: no but listeners at home that sounds fun and you know we have people sending feedback to us after every episode Try out that Double Rituals game and let us know what your experience is, because that does sound really cool. Yeah, if Laura
0: does four aspects on Shadows at one time, I think we can do two scenarios at the same time. That rocked. We still (laughs) lost that game.
2: What? (laughs) Just
0: kidding.
1: Yeah, because fundamentally, Rituals of Terror is about sort of the spirits and Dahan collectively trying to get together and do a thing. Whereas Rituals of the Destroying Flame is about individual spirits setting up places Mm -hmm. to be able to thwart the invaders. So they don't directly interact a huge amount, but it's sort of like a left hand, right hand. You're trying to juggle two different sets of priorities.
2: Yeah, Mm -hmm. That's awesome. That sounds great. That's a good thing to end on be like, oh, here's a new challenge for everyone to play. I like that. So, Eric, obviously we are Spirit Island Podcast, but you do other things as well, and I've seen a lot of positive feedback for another game you designed, For Science. Congratulations, that's awesome.
1: Thank you so much. I'm really happy that it's finally out.
2: Hey! From what I know, I don't know a ton, it's a dexterity cooperative game. What made you want to, I don't know, get into this dexterity genre?
1: So, the design of For Science actually predates Spirit Island. I started it, I think, in like 2009, And it's not exactly a recent impulse, the driving factor behind it was I was walking through a convention and I saw people playing several different dexterity games and all the ones which were of the form build this thing. Mm -hmm. The game told you what to build. There was some form of picture or instruction or something where baked into the design of the game was that you would have to build a very specific structure. And I wanted a dexterity game where it was the players who decided what to build, basically where you could sort of make your own bed and then lie in it. So it's a real time game and you end up with a strategic trade-off where the thing you need to build, you can just slam out a design as fast as you can. It will be very quick, but the thing you're going to build might be really hard and you have nobody to blame but yourself. Or you can take extra time and you can carefully think about what will this be like to build. And it costs more time to design it that way. But then when you actually go to do the next dirty portion, you're much more short of having it be reasonable to do. So I really wanted to build something that got that trade-off. And it really works that way. And I'm very happy about that.
0: I really dig that. I think it's like such a simple gameplay thing, but I think it's like really cool. Thank you. Because like you said, you are bound by that clock. So we can go ahead and try to make the simplest cure, which means that we are purposefully looking for simple blocks to use. Cool. Now that we've made it, we got two minutes to do it. (laughs) Versus, quick, let's get it in. Cool. We're done with our formula and we got 10 minutes to spare. Cool. Uh oh. Yeah. This is going to be one crazy difficult thing to build.
2: Real-time games are tough
1: yep. and stress- stressful.
2: Stressful,
3: They yeah. are. A lot of yelling.
1: Yep. <laughs> the core loop of the game is that you're designing and building things, where the design is card play and build is physically building the structure you have designed with using blocks. And then doing that earns you universal vaccine tiles, which then form the third leg of the game where you're trying to create enclosed areas to capture insight icons. Once you have enough insight, then you win the game. And in the intermediate period, insight icons will power up your special abilities. That also has a similar trade-off mechanism where you can choose to, if you spend a lot of time working on the universal vaccine puzzle, you can make the most out of every single icon, get as much closed off as possible, and probably maybe somewhere between 70 and 90% of the insight icons you have available to you, you'll be able to make use of or you can spend less time on that and just spend more time designing and building stuff so that you just splat out as many tiles as you can so then you throw them together really inefficiently but you have so many of them that you can make up for it. So again, like you can choose which areas you focus on and which areas you focus on will create different styles of play in the areas you don't focus on. And that's something I'm really pleased with how it turned out.
0: So all of this, all of this interlocking back and forth, all this stuff, this is what the invaders are doing when a disease token is removed. <laughs> <laughs> Do I have that right? Nice,
1: right? <laughs> nice, that was good. Oh, really nice. Yeah, I think they're going with the more old-fashioned form of see who survives.
0: Uh, leeches! <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, okay, so the next 4Science expansion has a leak-shaped block. Be horrible. <laughs> Speaking of those
2: blocks, those blocks look cool and big and chunky, and I like those.
1: Yeah, I was actually working with a different publisher to start off with, but it turned out that with their sourcing, they could only do smaller blocks. And like two thirds scale doesn't sound like that much smaller, but when you cube two thirds, it would have become a fingertip game instead of a full hand chunky game. Mm -hmm. So we ended up not working together, but I'm still very thankful to them. They were awesome. That was CGE. So two thumbs up for CGE. They did great. Gray Fox ended up being the eventual publisher. They were able to source the wood in a way, which worked. And if there's anybody who's looking for it, like there is a shipment of it, which is coming. It's not a full print run. It's part of the initial print run. But there are some number of pallets of it being shipped to the United States. It's just that shipping from China right now is very variable. Makes sense. Once those sell out, then any reprint would probably involve another crowdfunding campaign, at which point I would definitely be talking it up.
2: It looks really yeah. cool. I mean, I'd buy it. That looks yeah. sweet.
3: I want to get my hands on the copy.
2: I don't know if you were aware, but no pun included, a pretty decently sized YouTube board gaming channel, they named For Science their game of the year.
1: I was tremendously gratified at that, both that they did it and at their wonderful articulation of why. Mm. That was great.
0: I'll go add on my things to do tab to watch this video. Yeah, <laughs> include that like, No, it was a good video. Yes. I think they explained it really well. Yeah. That was great. Thank you. Eric, did that suffice? (laughs) Did that satisfy you? That was
1: deeply satisfying
0: <laughs> this whole episode has been satisfying this has been fun <laughs> yes thank you so much for coming on once again this has been like so cool thank you so much for
1: having me yes and we had Laura this time hooray Yay!
3: this was fun I finally got to talk with you
0: Yay! if it would be of a helpful thing everybody Laura legitimately isn't feeling so great so if you weren't like satisfied with her involvement she was feeling a little bit under the weather today
3: I've been in a drugged up haze all day it's you, good
0: you did great it was your I think she did great it was her jordan flu game she did great good job laura Alrighty, and with that until next week we will catch you all on the flippity flip i've been ryan uh, i'll go next john
3: also laura and eric
0: hey hey everyone editing ryan here we want to extend a big thank you to Eric for joining us on this episode. It's a massive understatement to say that we greatly appreciate it. We are always thrilled and excited whenever he stops by, and we're already looking forward to the next time that we can do this. The reason I'm coming in here is because I just want to remind you that next week is the weekend of July 4th, which is one of the holidays that we take off for. I'm going to release a public service announcement next week to talk to you about some things. So you will still hear from us next week, but just understand that it won't be an episode, but rather a PSA. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay awesome. Alright, I'll see you next week.